Uh, yeah, so you're reading along through scripture and you know, you've, been, you've been reading lots about the history, you've been reading lots about who God is, and uh, you're learning some theology as you're traveling through you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and then you get to Song of Songs and you think, why is there such explicit material about sex in this book? Why is there so much sex in the Bible? You might be thinking. Uh, others of you may be quite relieved to know that, yes, the Bible does talk so openly, without shame, without any embarrassment. And maybe it was a church you grew up in that uh, wouldn't dare talk about sex. Uh, so this book here, there's some, there's some steamy stuff uh, in this book. Um, old uh, Jewish tradition was, was such that, um, you know, young Jewish boys were permitted from reading the Song of Songs. Uh, if you were to hand this book to a married couple, they would tell you very quickly that this book is a love poem, quite erotic poem about sex and sexuality to be enjoyed within the context of marriage. There's steamy stuff here in this book. The woman talks about opening the gate or entering into her garden. So I just want to say right off from the beginning here, it's craziness that the Bible speaks so openly and so joyfully about a gift such as sex and sexuality. It's craziness that we should remain silent about it, that we should feel shame whenever we are talking about it. Most of your friends here in San Francisco, uh, there's a readiness, there's a, uh, an openness for sure to talk about sex and sexuality. So when we come into the church, we shouldn't be silenced to also talk about sex and sexuality. God is not silenced when God deals with this beautiful topic. And so, if you're interested in pure, committed, faithful love and what a marriage relationship and the sexuality within a marriage relationship actually looks like, you've found it right here in the book of Song of Songs. So the, so the deepest, most intimate details of your life and my life, sometimes those private parts of our lives that we don't talk about, our sex and our sexuality, God cares. God cares about that. And even in that most intimate act of sex, God is present. God is actually present in that moment and cares about these matters. So that moment when two human beings in marital love are naked with one another. And there's no shame because they know that they are loved and accepted by God. And so I'm giving you a teaser here to go and read the book of Song of Songs. A real quick narrative summary before we choose a sample passage here. Uh, narrative summary goes like this, that the book, as I'm calling it, is Song of Songs. Now, you probably know that some other translations say Song of Solomon. Well, if you're reading chapter 1, verse 1, it's going to say that it is the Song of Songs of Solomon. Song of Songs of Solomon. It is a collection of poems um, known. Uh, and so the Hebrew idiom Song of Songs means the greatest song. Like saying the Holy of Holies, the King of Kings. This is the Song of Songs. And now the of Solomon part, is Solomon truly the writer? Well, maybe, maybe not. Scholars have debated this. 
but I'm, I'm more on the maybe not side. And that would be because the of Solomon, it really would just mean it's from the wisdom literature tradition of Solomon. Song of Songs of Solomon in that way. Solomon uh, never even speaks in the book. He's mentioned in the book, but he never speaks. There's a woman and there's a man and there's this poetic discourse that they're having uh, with one another. Another reason is Solomon had 700 wives, and I don't think he would be a good example uh, for us as we talk about sex and sexuality. The structure here is a collection of love poems. There's no linear sequence. If you're rational linear, you know, Western mindset, trying to read this book, you're going to be uh, perhaps disappointed. So you need to read it as love poems. It's meant to be read as a whole and understand these voices talking back to each other. The voices are the shepherd, that's the male, and then the shepherdess is the female. They're talking back and forth to each other. And the first theme is there's this intense desire that they have for each other. They're seeking and finding one another. You'll begin to notice very quickly, though, that they get separated. And then they are on the hunt for each other. And they're longing to be together again. They desire one another. They find each other. They embrace. The scene gets a little steamy. And then they depart again. And they lose each other. And they're on this search again to find one another. And there's this constant, repetitive theme over and over again of intense desire for each other. Second theme would be joy of their physical attraction to one another. You being married, so those of you who are married, and uh, you understand exactly what I'm talking about. Even if you're not married, and you're thinking about marriage, there's this joy of being physically attracted to that other person. Now, multiple times in the book, they're going to pause and describe one another with these elaborate metaphors. Have you, have you read just by show of hands. Who's read the book of Song of Songs? Okay, so you're going to see some metaphors when you read this book that they say to each other, like, your eyes are like doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats. I wouldn't recommend going and saying that to your significant other uh, on your romantic date tonight and saying this one, your teeth are like lambs. Uh, your neck is a tower. Your lips drip honey. That's a pretty good one. Um... But these images uh, and metaphors in, in Hebrew poetry are not primarily uh, to be taken literal uh, or even visual, but there's deep meaning behind each of these metaphors that are listed in this book for us. The third theme is sex is good. Sex is real good and enjoyed within the context of marriage that God has given it to us to be enjoyed in. And the poem highlights the power and the intensity of love. It's both beautiful. Love is beautiful and love can be very dangerous. Sex is beautiful and at the same time can be very, very uh, damaging if not treated properly. Some imagery here in the book. As you go through this book, there is a scene of a garden. And again, if you've read the very first book of the Bible, the opening chapters of the Bible, guess what? The Bible starts with... Two naked people in a garden. And so this book, Song of Songs, I always love to tell, by the way, my non-Christian friends, that, that those friends and myself that are discussing the Bible together. Did you see the look on their face when I say that the Bible starts with two naked people? 
Uh, again, just to let them know that God knows about, cares about, and has given us sex within this context of marriage. So there's a garden imagery. There's idyllic scene between a married couple in the early chapters of the Bible. The image of the man and the woman are naked. They're vulnerable with one another. And they're completely unified. And they're safe with one another. Um, Jesus in the Song of Songs. We're trying to cover that each week. Like, How does Jesus appear in each of these books of the Bible? And as we've mentioned for, for in fact, all of them so far, Jesus, the name Jesus, isn't appearing in any of these books. But there's great imagery, there's great finger pointing from the Old Testament towards this Jesus figure who will show up for us in the New Testament. So Jesus in the Song of Songs is to remind us that there's no sweeter marital intimacy than the marital intimacy and love that Jesus has for us, his people. There's no faithfulness that you'll ever, ever witness in your own marriage, the dream of a marriage, uh, that has a, a level and a depth of intimacy and faithfulness to it as Jesus has for us. Uh, so, there we are with our narrative song. Everybody still good? Still interested in uh, some of the songs here? Okay, great. So, sample passage today, um, as we get started, I'm going to uh, give a quote from Blaise Pascal. Thank you, someone, for looking at me like I'm crazy. We're talking about sex, and I'm going to start with a quote from Blaise Pascal. And you, you're probably thinking, French mathematician, um, physicist, inventor, writer, what in the world does he say, or can he dare say, about sex and sexuality? Here's the quote. There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each person which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator made known to us through Jesus Christ. That's right. There is a God-shaped hole or vacuum inside the human heart Blaise Pascal is presenting before us today. And there's nothing that you and I could put in that hole or that gap that's going to give us the ultimate sense of fulfillment, joy, pleasure, stability. Of course, we try with money, sex, identity, career, and so forth. And so I just want to, as we're starting today, say that marriage, as wonderful as marriage is, I'm celebrating 24 years of marriage this summer, and it truly, by God's grace, keeps getting better and better and better and better. Marriage is not the ultimate experience. Sex is not the ultimate experience. But that's good news. That is great news. And I also want to say that if you've lived a life without sex, when you're finally in heaven, you will see and finally realize that you did not miss out. Heaven, God's very presence, the very God that we're worshiping this morning and even learning about right now, that very God, His very presence is so much more valuable, pleasurable, than even sex itself. Or if you've lived a life enjoying sex within the boundary of marriage that God has given you in heaven, you'll finally realize that that experience doesn't even compare. It doesn't even compare with the joy and the pleasure 
that you and I will finally find in God. Takes us right back to that Blaise Pascal quote. There is that God-shaped vacuum inside of you and inside of myself and in all of humanity. That's how God made us. Three points we're making today. Number one is there's a purpose. Number two, the boundaries. And number three, there's grace. So there's a purpose. Sex has a God-given purpose. And then there are boundaries. God has given us boundaries for our sex and sexuality. And then grace. We're going to need grace. We're going to need grace and forgiveness and God's mercy and compassion in this journey. By the way, I spoke on this topic in a sermon series or two prior called um, State of Our Unions. It's a series on marriage. So if you're interested in that, you can go back and find that on our website there. And I'll be using some of that, some of that teaching here in this very sermon this morning because we uh, recited Song of Solomon in that, in, that, in that sermon. The first one, purpose here. Sex has a God-given purpose in marriage. Here's a quote from Trimper Longman's commentary on the Song of Songs. He says, the role of the woman throughout the Song of Songs is truly astounding, especially in light of its ancient origins. It is the woman, not the man, who is the dominant voice throughout the poems that make up the song. She is the one who seeks, pursues, initiates. She boldly exclaims her physical attraction. However, most English translations hesitate, but the Hebrew is quite erotic, and most translators cannot bring themselves to bring out the obvious meaning in this book. This, again, is a prelude to their lovemaking. There is no shy, shamed, mechanical movement under the sheets. Rather, the two stand before each other, aroused, feeling no shame, but only joy in each other's sexuality. Purpose in sex. Someone might say real quickly, oh, it's just for procreation. You're just supposed to have kids. Of course, God in the Bible would say, okay, that's part of it, yes. Yet there's also this self-donation of oneself to the other. Where both parties in this marriage are coming together, not with a self-expression or, or, or a selfish trying to get something, but, but rather a self-donation in this relationship. So the Song of Songs is filled with rejoicing in sexual pleasure within the context of marriage. Is that clear? Is that absolutely clear? Sex is good. God created it. It's beautiful within this context of marriage. Let me give you a few verses from the Song of Solomon. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 16. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Awake, north wind. And come, south wind. Blow my garden, that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let, let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verses 7 through 9. Your stature is like that of a palm, and your breasts like clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the tree. I will take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like clusters of grapes on the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. Just read the Bible, y'all. Just, just read the Bible here. Typical Sunday morning, uh, 
We're a church that talks about sex and sexuality. Uh, here we are in the Bible reading this. Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 1. Eat, friends, drink, and imbibe deeply, oh, lovers. Wow, that's in the Bible? Bible reading tr- just trended right there. People are like, I can't wait to get out of here and go read my Bible. Proverbs chapter 5. Not, we, we were in the book of Proverbs a couple, couple weeks ago. But read some of Proverbs 5 here that says, May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. This is such beautiful, poetic language. In explaining the biblical view of sex, there's Richard Hayes in his commentary on 1 Corinthians. says that moderns view sex as a medium of exchange for fun and convenience and view money as something sacred, special, worth sacrificing for, not something easily shared. But biblical Christianity espouses just the opposite view. Money is merely an exchange, a way to procure goods and services. It is not special or sacred. It is something to be shared, to be given away to those who need it. Sex, on the other hand, is sacred and special and to be enjoyed only in the right context of pointing us toward the eternal. One of the purposes in marriage is that of renewing a covenant. Covenant means promise. There's a covenant renewal that takes place every time a married couple is engaging in sex together. You may have not thought about it in that way, but that is exactly what's happening. Maybe you've never thought to reread your, your vows on your wedding night. But it is a re-upping, it is a remembering of a covenant not just a feeling, not just feeling a certain way, although that's there, but it's a covenant. And so throughout Scripture, when God enters into a covenant with His people, He bases it more on something than just feelings. There's something binding to provide consistency and endurance in that relationship. Therefore, God requires a binding public legal covenant as the infrastructure for intimacy. This is where God is coming from. This sort of gets into the designer's design in making sex to be enjoyed within marriage. And that's because it's far easier to be vulnerable to someone who is bindingly promised to be exclusively faithful to you than to someone that's just going to sleep with you for just a couple months, or maybe even just a night. Genesis chapter 2, we're hearkening to go back to Genesis once again, verse 24 and 25, that says, This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united with his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So one flesh, what in the world does that mean? Is it just physical? Adam and Eve, the modern day husbands and wives have become one flesh. Is it just referring to a physicality of intercourse or the act of sex? Of course not. It means a complete, complete union. 
inseparable oneness in all the other areas. It involves economics. It's legal, it's personal, it's psychological. That's what binds the covenant together. That's what makes the covenant so, so real. Anthony Thistleton, Bible commentary, says, Far from devaluing sex, one flesh involves the entire person, not merely body parts, the full giving of the entire self to the one you belong. Or C.S. Lewis calls sex the great dance. All of God's reality, from the stars and the solar systems to the act of sexual intercourse, form an ongoing dynamic dance in which plans without number interlock, and each movement becomes in its season the breaking into flower of the whole design to which all else has been directed. Sex is beautiful. Sex is to be enjoyed within the context of marriage. We should talk about it openly and with great comfort in the church, more than we're doing. Yet, we also know that sex can be destructive. Some of us have faced trauma. Some of us have been abused. Uh, some of us have been bullied by pornography. Sex is not always the easiest topic to talk about. And that's because there's destruction within sex and sexuality, even as we are talking about it here. Therefore, out of love, God gives us boundaries to protect us from the destructive nature that sex and sexuality can be. We're going to start with the relationship with God first before we look at these boundaries. But I want you to imagine uh, fire. Right now, think about fire. Uh, I mean, it makes sense, right? We're talking about sex, talk, talk about fire. No. I want you to think about the fire that you cook on. When you think about that fire, I want you to think about a cozy fireplace that you maybe enjoy. And I want you to think about a safe forest fires. All of these images are good. All of them are for our good until the fire is not used properly. And then it creates destruction. Even the little fire at your stovetop that you turn on. I mean, imagine the designer, how brilliant that that fire travels through this little metal pipe instead of just blowing up in your face. It's so simple to think about, but there's a design to it. It has boundaries there to it. It's keeping you and I from getting hurt. And these boundaries are a gift to us from that designer. Therefore, repeated three times throughout the Song of Songs, we get this refrain, I charge you, love, that is, sexual love must not be stirred up or awakened until the time is right. But when is the right time? It's, it's, it's when I'm feeling that kind of way, right? It's whenever they're feeling that kind of way, right? Isn't that the time that love should be stirred up and sex should just be stirred up and opened? I mean, what's, what's holding us back? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, gets a little bit more explicit about these boundaries regarding mining your sex and sexuality. It says, but among you, speaking to Christians, by the way, among you, Christian, 
There must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or, any, or of any kind of impurity or greed because these are improper for God's holy people. So, some boundaries for all of us here, whether we are single, whether we're divorced, whether we're married, it was purity. Did you catch that one? God's not trying to beat up on any one of those uh, categories of people. Oh, this is a talk just for me if I'm single. Tell me not to have sex. I knew it. I, I knew it was coming. Uh, actually, the call is for purity for all of us. For married people to stay pure by not lusting or committing adultery. Keep sex within the marriage. Not to have it in your mind with someone else. Enjoy sex as a gift from God within the context of your marriage. For the single person to stay pure by not having sex outside of marriage. And in that covenantal commitment that we just talked about. So the Bible starts with our identity with God and our relationship with God. And if you start with boundaries, this is the point. If you start with boundaries instead of relationship that you and I would chafe. We say, I knew it. I knew, I knew that God was just trying to take my fun away. I knew it. And Christianity is a straight job. And I refuse to wear it. I knew it. There's a great chapter uh, in Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, and it's called, Is Christianity a Straight Jacket? And it's certainly something that I personally could relate to um, in, in my period of conversion and considering if I would become a Christian or not. You have to. The Bible invites you to go back to the relationship with God. That God loves what He's created. God's made you. God knows you. And therefore, the Bible doesn't start with rules, but a relationship. And if you start with a relationship with God, you'll be led to these boundaries. Inevitably, you will come to these boundaries. And there's a lot more of the submitting and embracing these boundaries, I would even say with gratitude, once we begin to understand the person behind boundaries. Person, God. Culture is going to teach us, hey, there's, uh, freedom is the absence of restrictions. Sigmund Freud, ring a bell anyone? Remember learning about Sigmund Freud, and this was his entire premise of the external and internal influence. External influence is our conscience that's formed by our culture and upbringing. Your culture right now is saying, you better run right out of here right now and go have sex with whoever, whenever. Internal influence. There's this innate sex drive and instinct, you know, similar to animals that function with instinct. No character. I mean, your dog is not asking when they can have sex, who they can have sex with. It's part of nature. The Freud calls sexual ethics repressive or artificial. And the Christian message is because there's a relationship with God, there is a sexual ethic. God has something to say lovingly to us about our sexuality. Becoming Free, this is a book by Charles Hummel, InterVarsity Press. It gives us illustration of a fish only being free when it's in the water. And he says, freedom is not the absence of restrictions, but finding the right restrictions that fit with your nature. God knows 
that our nature, even though we've been created in the image of God, with the ability to love, the ability to be selfless and love others, God also knows that part of our nature is that we're fallen. We're fallen creatures. And if we don't have boundaries, we will take advantage of others somehow. We will be hurt. We will experience some of the destructive nature of sex. 1 Corinthians, there in the New Testament, chapter 6, verse 19 says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You have a designer. You have a maker. This very God who created you lives inside of you, we were singing about earlier. Now, by the way, any magazine that you may have seen recently in a grocery store at the checkout center, strategically placed right there, is going to say things to you such as, and I saw one this morning, by the way, on my way here, 10 ways to improve your sex life. Have you seen these? Seven ways to perform better in the bedroom. I mean, like, wait a minute, didn't I read that magazine cover last week? Every week. It keeps pumping out a new one, and a new one, and a new one, and a new one. Daily, I would submit, bombardment, bullying almost, all around me and you, giving you and I all sorts of messages about our sex and sexuality. Pornography, we should talk about it. Here it is. It's cheap. It's a fake. It's not real. It's invaded God's design, and it's a total lie from hell. It's horrible. Some spouses get caught. Others never get caught. But both types are left feeling utterly empty. Utterly empty. And so Satan, our great enemy, uses pornography to create an addiction and destroy our capacity for intimacy. So boundaries for all of us. The Bible isn't saying that the fire of sex is bad. No, no. It's just saying that you need to build that fire in the right place. Build it in the right place. Putting the passion in the wrong place, guaranteed to get burned. Guaranteed to have that fire blow up in your face somehow, in some way. So our thought life, conversations, websites, some of these expressions, if left out of control, are going to lead us to get burned. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, it says, flee sexual immorality. Now here's one of those verses in the Bible that does speak against premarital sex and extramarital sex. It's not just speaking to the single person saying don't have sex for marriage. The word fornication, the word fornication is used in some of the older translations of the Bible, like King James Version. But some of the newer translations, in the Greek even, there's the word porneia. And the word porneia, which we get porn from, or pornography from, means any sex, any sex, outside the boundaries of marriage. You see, once again, it's talking to the married person. It's talking to the single person. It's purity for all, that we're all created to flee sexual immorality. 
few boundaries for marriage, if you're married and you're listening to this, a few boundaries. And by the way, sex inside of marriage is, is magical. It's magical. Sex is like blowing air on the hot coals of this powerful flame that burns even brighter and hotter. Sex only works in the fullest way God intended for one man, one woman, within the exclusive, permanent, legal commitment of marriage. Tim and Kathy Keller, in their book on marriage, it's a great book on marriage, I highly recommend it. It's called The Meaning of Marriage. They say, sex in marriage is a way to say to your spouse, I belong completely and exclusively to you. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 15 through 20. Drink water from your own cistern, married husband, married wife. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. Now, in addition to adultery, here's a few more boundaries for marriage. If you're not married, take notes. You'll need this one day. Come back to this talk. Um, another boundary would be withholding sex to punish your spouse. Yes, that exists. That is out there. In my years of being a, a pastor, it's involved pastoral counseling to, to couples over the years, and there have been times where you hear in a uh, marriage counseling session that one is actually willfully choosing to withhold sex from the other one. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And a lot of times, in fact, almost all the time, there's some deeper issue going on there. There's some level of uh, sin that's taking place. There's some level of there's not deep communication happening. There's some level of there's not forgiveness happening there in that relationship. And so it's a call to go much deeper in communication. Second boundary would be demanding sex from a husband or a spouse. Selfish sex can be destructive in that relationship. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition. Be humble. Remember that self-donation. Both husband and wife self-donating themselves one to another. And then one last one here before we move on to boundaries for singles. But it would be shaming your spouse. When frustrated about perhaps your sex life, saying something hurtful to your spouse. Saying something that could shame them and make them feel insecure about their body, perhaps. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 18 says, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Brings healing, brings encouragement. A few boundaries uh, for singles here. Again, 
single friends that I'm chatting with about sex and sexuality, one question that always comes up is, why is sex outside of marriage destructive? I mean, I'm single, I'm not married. I'm not really committing adultery. They're not married either. They're not committing adultery either, are they? The Bible's answer would be, yes, both of you are committing adultery. You're having sex outside of the bounds of marriage. Back to the, the scripture passage we read, we read earlier there, there's any sex outside of marriage. And like all addictions, the more you do it, the less payoff there is. There's less payoff, becomes less and less powerful, less and less pleasurable. You put it putting more and more holes within yourself, the more and more you engage in that. So God causes people to give themselves exclusively to one another in the boundaries of marriage. Similarly, in the way that God has exclusively given himself to you. And there's a book of the Bible that we'll be citing a few weeks from now called the book of Hosea. And in that book, it talks about how God is the faithful spouse. God is not running around on us with others. God doesn't cheat on us. God is perfectly faithful to us. So self-control, you know, you start thinking uh, as a Christian single, well, I just need to have self-control. I just need to try harder. And this is where I would say that self-control is not us controlling ourselves. You're not trying to control yourself to be stricter, but it's choosing who is going to control you. Allowing God's very presence to control you through the indwelling Holy Spirit. That would go for married couples as well. Now a Christian, a Christ follower, is going to fail. Is going to fail at some of what we're talking about here. There's going to be failure in this journey. And so yes, as a church, we want to talk about sex and sexuality. Uh, it is God's good gift within the context of marriage. There's destruction that can happen if we live outside those boundaries. But as a church, we also want to say there's grace. There's grace for us broken human creatures who can't live life perfectly, who won't live life perfectly. We need God's grace. Third and final point here. Just a quick word here to men. Some of the men listening to this have gotten your idea of beauty or an idea of beauty in a beautiful woman from some website somewhere. Perhaps. And there's, there's, there's pressure within your own mind to, to, to find that woman. <laughs> and she's airbrushed. She's not even real. And a culture, I believe, has placed pressure on you females as well. You know, shows, uh, sorry, I'm going to throw a couple of shows under the bus here. Um, the Bachelor or The Bachelorette. They're probably newer shows now that do even a, even a worse job of this, but I know the bachelor and the bachelorette thinking that your husband is supposed to look like that guy or that your husband is supposed to take you out on dates just like that guy does. And therefore, you are dissatisfied with your husband based off of that image. Beware of that. When we feed the fire of these ideals for sex, it leads to destruction lack of true intimacy, and loneliness. Loneliness. 
Sacred Marriage book by Gary Thomas, another wonderful book here, says, when sex is reduced to pleasure alone, no wife, no husband can meet one another's expectations. When sex is reduced to just pleasure alone, go ahead and face it, your husband will not meet all those expectations. Nor your wife is what he said. And I just want to, as we're coming to a close here, I just want to say that many of us have been burned by this fire of sex. Many of us. Most people that I end up meeting and ended up getting to know one another, somewhere in them and myself sharing our story, and I think it's the story of humanity, is we have been burned by sex. Yet there's God's healing. There's God's forgiveness. There's God's restoration. That we can, that we can be encouraged. This, this God knows that about me. This God longs for me and you to be restored. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11 says, and that is what some of you were in the preceding verses there talk about what some of us used to be. That is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You see, a Christian, what, is it, what does it even mean to be a Christian? It's someone who thanks God for God's grace and forgiveness. A Christian is not someone who thinks that they are morally better than others. In fact, it's just the opposite. A Christian would certainly know that they are broken and in need of restoration and in need of healing and in need of grace. This church, the church, is a hospital. It's a hospital for sinners. It's a hospital for sinners. It's a place, it's a reality where we come and are known by this God to be healed and encouraged each week. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. You were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. Referring to Christ, very costly payment that Christ made on behalf of you and me as sinners. Christ lived a life in place of you. A life that you and I could never live. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So, a word to the virgins listening to this, who may be thinking, hey, this talk doesn't even relate to me. Talking about brokenness and sexual sin and like all this stuff. I've been sexually pure. Look at me. Well, maybe it's arrogant pride that you need to repent of. Maybe it's self-righteous self-reliance in your abilities to control yourself that you need to repent of. Or for the sexually promiscuous who may be thinking, God, can you even make something out of the wreckage that my sex life has been? Can you possibly do that? Are you, is your grace that big? And for the sexually abused, maybe the raped or the molested who may be thinking, I despise my own body because someone took advantage of me 
I'll never be enjoyed. I'll never be pursued. I'll never be looked at by anyone. Hear this good news. Hear this good news. Your body is beautiful. God created you in your body. And just because someone took advantage of you, God made you, loves you, and desires to make something beautiful of the pain that you've gone through. Hear that good news. And for the, even the sexual abuser, some of us are even thinking, is there room in God's grace for that person? Yes. For the sexual abuser who may be thinking, can God forgive me for such awful sin? And the answer is yes. God's grace is always great, always more profound and stronger than our sin. And for everyone else in between, if we didn't just name you there, Hear this good news. God's grace is enough for all of our sexual hurt, all of our sexual pain, and all of our sexual longings and dreams that we all may have for ourselves. God is a creator, and we're talking about the person of God. He's a creator, a sculptor, who reshapes and restores our sex and sexuality. He's a great physician. That God can heal our pain and brokenness. God is a wonderful counselor who gives us wisdom and a good shepherd. God is a good shepherd that leads us forward in this journey. And God is this forever faithful spouse. The spousal love of Jesus who's unconditionally committed to us. Let's pray right now. Let's quiet our hearts as we pray. God, thank you for the beautiful gift of sex within marriage. We've all been hurt and damaged by sex. When it's been used in a way contrary to what you designed, help us confess our sexual sins of lust, adultery, impatience, selfishness, and help us receive your gift of boundaries. Help us receive your gift of grace to forgive us, to heal us, to restore us, and to give us true freedom. And we pray this in your name, King Jesus. Amen.